Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Previously on The Yellow Car. It was just a lot of smoke and mirrors. You know, I've read through the testimony of the woman who saw the yellow car. But outside of that, the rest is garbage. They interviewed this woman who said she had knowledge that my dad had uh, killed my mom. And then my mom had said, I'm afraid he's gonna, he's gonna kill me and he's gonna kill you too. We had requested that they send a sample of my mom's blood to the lab for DNA sequencing. The problem is that the blood had been pulled out of the freezer and left in the bin. It could have degraded to a point where it had no DNA value. Oh no. Yeah. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic content. Some people may find it disturbing. Okay, it's Wednesday, July 29th. I'm gonna call Pune for an update on all this DNA testing. It's July of 2020. It's been more than a month since Pune Gray found out the lab sample of her mom's blood was no good. It became degraded at some point after being taken out of the evidence refrigerator. We still don't know why or how that happened. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Pune, how are you? Luckily, for her sake, the sheriff's office had other samples of Effie and Tazari's DNA and sent them out to Pune's lab for testing, and they did it much faster than she hoped. Because it was a hair sample that it would take about 10 days, um, and we got the results back in three, so I'm pretty happy. So um, when you say you got the results back, you're just saying that they were able to um, do DNA sequencing on your mom's hair, and then they'll send that those results or that that to um, cybergenetics. Is that where we're at then? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Remember, cybergenetics is the lab that's going to finalize the DNA comparison between the mixture left on Effie at the crime scene and the DNA of the man Pune suspects shot Effie. And they've already taken care of that. So. On Friday, they were able to get my mom's DNA sequence, full DNA sequence. They went ahead and sent it to Cybergenetics, who started working on it right away, and they're hoping to have the final report into Clark County by either Friday or Monday. She is so close to getting results that she believes will lead to an arrest. Oh, wow. And that would, and final report meaning that comparison you're wanting to do with the suspect's DNA. Exactly. This is the beginning of the end. I'm your host, Ashley Korslin. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. On the morning of Effie and Tazari's murder in 1989, we've established that her estranged husband, Mike Antazari, didn't have a solid alibi for around 6 a.m. He maintained he was at home, getting ready for work around the time the shooting happened. 
After driving to his workplace, Portland Community College, Mike said he set up some equipment in the lab, then grabbed a cup of coffee at the campus cafe around 7.30. An employee at the cafe was the only person who recalled seeing Mike that morning at the school. But I want to play a clip for you of a video deposition used in Mike's murder trial because it's the only piece of original video I've been able to track down from the court hearings. Uh, for the record, this is the 12th day of December, 1989. It's a deposition of one of Mike's colleagues at PCC who did not see Mike on campus the morning of May 1st. Uh, the state is represented by the prosecuting attorney, Art Curtis. The defendant is represented by his attorney, Mr. Stephen Thayer. The defendant is present, uh, Mr. Mike Antazari. You can't see Mike in the video, but it's the first time I've ever heard him speak. Mr. Andazari, you've heard the previous stipulation. That he only says three words. Yes, Your Honor. During the deposition. Would you state your full name, please, and spell your last name for the record? Attorneys interview Mike's co-worker. Uh, Douglas Carl Draper. An engineering supervisor. Are you acquainted with the defendant in this case, Mike Antazari? Yes, I am. And you recognize him as being in the courtroom today? Yes. Would you point him out, please? He's right over there next to you in the brown coat. As the record reflect, the witness has pointed to the defendant, Mike Antizari. All right, the record will so note. How is it that you know Mr. Antizari? I taught with him and was uh, instrumental in hiring him for a course that I teach at PCC. In what course is that? Douglas looks to be in his 50s or 60s with salt and pepper hair. He has thick glasses and is wearing a sweater vest over a button-up shirt. Was Mr. Antizari hired? He looks down a lot as he answers questions. Even when he points to Mike across the room, he doesn't make eye contact. Oh, well, uh, he, was he seems almost sad to be there, or very uncomfortable at the least. Do you ever recall seeing Mr. Antizari on Monday, May 1st, 1989 at Portland Community College? I don't recall seeing him. After about five minutes of questions from prosecutor Art Curtis. Thank you, I have no further questions. Mike's defense attorney, Stephen Thayer, takes over. You mentioned a moment ago, and I believe uh, it's your testimony that you did not see Mike on May 1st at PCC, right? I don't believe I did. All right, were you there that day yourself, sir? Yes, I'm what sure time did, What time did you arrive there? Uh, I would have guessed uh, about 8.30. So if Mike was there before 8.30 and left before you arrived, you wouldn't have seen him, would you? Uh, no, I wouldn't have. Thank you. I have no further questions. And that concluded the deposition with Douglas Draper. Now, back to Mike's timeline of the morning of the murder. After his short stop at the college, Mike went on to Providence Hospital for an EKG to rule out any heart complications. Remember, he said he had been having chest pains the night before. He was at the hospital from 10 a.m. to almost 4 p.m. When he finished, that's when detectives stopped him. One investigator noted in a report that as Mike saw the deputies, he immediately turned around and walked quickly in another direction. Mike disputed that, saying he never saw any police as he walked out of the exam room and that he stopped as soon as he heard detectives calling his name. Investigators walked Mike outside of the hospital and informed him that an investigation was underway into the death of his wife. According to police reports, when a detective asked Mike what he was doing in the hours before he got to the hospital, 
Mike said he wanted to speak to his lawyer. The report goes on to say that Mike denied committing the murder and asked if they could all go to his attorney's office so any questioning could be logged for the record. Before leaving, Mike agreed to let investigators search his car. They didn't find anything and didn't have probable cause to arrest him yet, so they let him go. Mike drove from Portland back to Vancouver while under police surveillance. He went right to the office of his attorney, Karen Dodona. What do, what do you remember him acting like or talking about after Effie died that day? Well, I think he was just broken at that point. Um, he was just emotionally crushed. Um, he was not a violent person. He was a very gentle soul. So um, he just took it all very quietly. Detectives maintained surveillance on Mike the entire evening, except for a 30 to 60 minute window. Mike was at Karin's office until about 9.30 that night. And so I'm just sitting there and waiting and the, po the police are sitting out front, but they're not doing anything, the sheriff's department. And so finally, Mike said, I want to go home and check the answering machine. I want to see if Pune called. And uh, so I said, okay, we'll go with you. Karen says she followed Mike to his house. On the way across town, detectives stopped Mike on the side of the road. They had gotten a warrant and were now able to swab his hands and clothes for gunshot residue. His fingernails, however, were too short and too clean for detectives to collect scrapings. They said, okay, you can go to your house and we're going to come with a search warrant and, uh, you can either be there or you can go somewhere else and we'll just break in and do our search warrant. So we decided to go to the house. Detectives followed Mike to his home where they searched the property and took the clothing he had on that day to be tested for evidence. And then um, they just tore that place up. I tell you, you can't, you can't buy that kind of education in law school to see how they do that, how they execute a search warrant. It was incredible. So were, we were you were there watching kind of, the whole time? Did you see yeah, it all go yeah, down? all night. The whole, the whole night. And so they wanted to, then they wanted to search his car. And what they found in the car would be baffling. This was the second search of Mike's Honda Accord. During the first quick search outside the hospital, just hours before, detectives found nothing. But during this second, longer search, investigators found a handgun next to five bullets right under the floor mat behind the passenger seat. So how did they miss the bulge under the mat the first time? To be fair, a 38 Special isn't a big handgun, but it is about the size of two to three decks of cards. The detective who did the first search of Mike's car outside the hospital testified during the trial about this. He said his search was quick, only a couple minutes. He said he never noticed a bulge or a ripple in the floor mat. A different detective who performed the second search of Mike's car and found the gun also testified. He stated he noticed a crease in the mat, but nothing that seemed out of the ordinary. That is until he lifted up the mat and saw the gun. This whole thing doesn't make much sense to Karen Dodona. She has her own theory about what happened. 
when they searched a second time, do you remember thinking it was odd about how they missed or they didn't see a gun during their first search? I always, and, I always thought they saw it, but they, they, it wasn't a proper search. The first so, time? Yeah, that's what I think. So then when they came back with the warrant to his house, that's when they, they brought it out. But I... I got a feeling, I always had a feeling that they saw it the first time around. It was under the mat, you know, the floor mat in the back seat, but they wouldn't have missed it. Uh, I, I think they did see it, and they they didn't want to take it uh, because it was an illegal search, and it probably would have got thrown out at trial. So they didn't want to uh, poison the fruit. But it wasn't an illegal search if Mike gave detectives permission to search his car at the hospital. And if Mike knew the gun was in the back seat, wouldn't it make sense for him to be upfront about it and tell them instead of waiting for detectives to find it? Beyond that, if detectives truly missed the gun during the first search, why would Mike leave it in his car all the way back to his attorney's office? I would think you'd want to get rid of it or hide it if you knew the police were onto you. But maybe he assumed police were following him and he had nowhere to toss the gun without being seen. I'm not sure. This is one of the more bewildering parts of the case, and I can never seem to make sense of it. Even though they'd already searched it once, and then we have a photo of it, but they opened up the car door and there is a bulge right underneath the um, mat. And what gets even wilder is Pune's theory about how the gun turned up in the car upon second search. I mean, the gun was right there under that. The mat. gun was right there. How do you think they missed it the first time? Then? I don't think they missed it the first time. There's no way a detective who is trying to look for a gun in a small car, this is, I mean, we're not talking like a big SUV. Pune says that her dad told her when he arrived at his attorney's office that afternoon, he saw the people Pune believes killed her mom. At the time, he didn't know what to make of it. And as he was walking up the stairs with the detective, he tells me, hey, I saw the suspects at my law firm. Don't you think that's odd? And that was his comment to me. And I thought, well, that is odd. So what do you think happened then? If, they did, if, they, if it wasn't in the car the first time? I think they had the gun. Um, I think my suspects had my dad's gun, and I think that they intended on using the gun on both my parents. But I think that the plans changed, and they didn't use the guns, but they had to put the, they had to put the gun back. So you think they planted it in the car maybe when your dad was visiting with his attorney? In I that, do. In that window where the police left surveillance? Yes. And put it in the back seat? Put it under or, the uh, map. Under the map. Mm -hmm. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. 
There is a lot to unpack when it comes to Pune's theories about the people she calls her suspects. And I want to be clear, they aren't officially considered suspects or even persons of interest from a law enforcement or legal perspective, at least as of this recording. So I won't be identifying them unless that changes or there's a big development with the investigation. I can tell you that in later episodes, we'll take a deeper dive into the case Pune has built against this group. But for now, let's get back to the case against Mike Antazari. In the back of Mike's car on the night of the murder, detectives found a Charter Arms 38 Special, a 38 caliber five-shot revolver. It's one of the more popular handguns out there and is often used for target shooting, hunting small game, or self-defense. Self-defense is the reason Mike said he bought the gun. He purchased it eight months before Effie's murder. He described some unusual things that had happened to him that made him fear for his safety. To give you a little bit of background history. Here's Pune. My dad, um, and he testified to some of this in court. He said he had been receiving um, hang-up phone calls preceding my mom's homicide, uh, threat calls from a guy uh, with a Middle Eastern accent um, saying vulgarities on the phone, that um, someone had broken into our home on several occasions and uh, going past the um, side gate. My mom had a key to our family home, and so she had no reason to, to break in. He said that he had also heard someone shooting what sounded like a shot being fired at him while he was driving down the freeway. This all led Mike to buy a gun for his protection in September of 1988. He also picked up two types of bullets, semi-wad cutters for target practice and hollow points for self-defense. Mike usually kept the gun under his mattress or in his car behind the passenger seat. He kept it unloaded in the car with the five bullets that fit in the cylinder right next to it. And that's exactly how detectives found things in the car. The gun, five bullets, and no spent cartridges. When they searched Mike's garage, they found a box of semi-wad cutter bullets. It was a 50-round box and 44 rounds were inside. Four of the five bullets found in the car were from that box of 50. That means two bullets were missing. Mike had answers for this. He said a few days after buying the gun, he wanted to try it out. He test fired one shot into the crawl space of his home. I'm not exactly sure why, but I would guess he thought it would be quiet or safe down there. Anyway, he said the gunshot startled his dog, so he wanted to try again in a place where the noise wouldn't bother anyone. So a couple months later, he went looking for an outdoor shooting range in Clark County called English Pit. Well, Mike couldn't find it, so he drove around for a while and decided to stop at a state park that he came across. Mike described it as more of a hunting area where people go to target practice. He says he set up a makeshift target and fired one shot. That one and the shot into the crawl space are the only two times Mike ever admitted to firing the gun. But did he use it to kill his estranged wife? When pressed by attorneys, Mike said, no, I didn't, that's absurd. Now let's take a dive into the forensics of the case. 
An FBI lab tested the gunshot residue swabs of Mike's hands. They came back negative, same with the sleeves of his jacket. Now, this isn't completely surprising. Experts say it's unlikely that significant amounts of residue would remain on someone's hands more than six hours after a shooting. Mike's hands were swabbed some 16 hours after Effie's murder. And the FBI lab went on to say that gunshot residue isn't often left behind on a shooter's clothing, which could explain why none was found on Mike's jacket. As for fingerprints, detectives took five prints at the crime scene from Effie's car and the truck parked next to her body. Four of the five prints weren't enough for an identification. One was, it was a palm print lifted from the front door post of the pickup truck closest to Effie. And it didn't match Mike's or Effie's prints. Of course, this could have come from anyone at any time, even days, weeks, or months before the murder. And if the shooter had gloves on, he wouldn't have left a print. Mike's gun and the five bullets found in his car were also tested for prints. None were found. And as for any blood on Mike's clothing, investigators did find traces of human blood on his shirt on the inside of his collar but the blood did not match Effie's. The theory at trial was Mike may have cut himself while shaving. Mike's genes were also tested in a dozen spots. One droplet of blood was discovered, but it was too small to test for comparison with Effie's blood. Lastly, Mike's shoes had no blood on them. So this brings us to the gun, Mike's 38 Special Revolver. This is where things get interesting and quite debated among experts in the forensic science field. Remember, Effie was shot at close range. There were just a couple inches between the barrel of the gun and her temple. One might imagine blood would spray back onto the weapon. It's called blowback. But when tested, Mike's gun had no blowback. There was no evidence of Effie's blood or tissue on the gun, in the cylinder, the part that holds the bullets, or inside the barrel. This is where Rod Ingler takes issue. He's the forensic expert Pune hired to review the evidence against her dad. And what were the biggest pieces of the evidence that started to make you maybe think otherwise about Mike's guilt? Uh, or Mike's non-involvement, or or his well, yeah, or his him being innocence. The, I started in him being the shooter about the gun that was found after the initial search. Uh, when there was no blood on the gun, it, it didn't make any sense. That's one of the first things he questioned when it came to whether Mike could have been the shooter. I asked him to explain blowback in more detail. Gunshot is in the category of high velocity type of misting pattern. It creates an aerosol spray that only goes a distance of three to four feet. Uh, Effie Antizari was shot in the left ear. What that creates when that goes in, liquid won't compress, blood will not compress. Gas will, but it has to go someplace. And when the bullet goes in, blood goes back towards the shooter, sometimes very little, sometimes a lot. And when it goes back toward the shooter, it'll get on the weapon, and in this case, it got onto the sleeve of her long sleeve sweater that she was wearing. It got onto the strap of a purse that she had, and then it'll fall very lightly to the ground. It's as though uh, it's a fine mist, like out of an aerosol spray, you know, really fine droplets. 
Those are very, very important at crime scenes. Effie's blood was all over her clothing, and Englert says it should have been on the gun, too. Was the gun back then tested for blood or blowback? By the lab before it came to us, negative. We looked at it. We spent probably two hours on that gun, negative, for any traces of blood. Negative that the first lab back in the trial tested? Washington State Lab. They did not test her or they did not find they any? They did and did not find any. And you got the same results. You did. You found no evidence exactly. of blowback. Right. Um, what does that tell you? What does the science tell you at which close range Effie was shot? That tells me that it's something that's not understood. That doesn't make sense. It's all over her shoulder here, confirmed. Little, tiny, little specks. And you could see it. Not only was it on the strap of the purse, but it was also going down the left side of her shoulder, mm -hmm. uh, down the left arm uh, there at that scene. So there should have been, in your expert opinion, there should have been some sort of evidence of blood on that gun or in the barrel of the gun. That's correct. And could he have cleaned it? Because it gets back into the barrel, too. Because this was a close contact. Could he have cleaned it or would you have mm. evidence of that? You would have found cleaning liquid or something of that sort. More than that, you can't clean blood and crevices because that's where it goes. I poured through all the reports from investigators and forensics examiners. There was no indication that they found any evidence of a cleaning agent on Mike's gun. At the time of the trial, how did the state explain the lack of blowback on the weapon? I don't know that they did. Uh, in 1989, uh, the early 90s, uh, blood pattern interpretation wasn't then as it is today. A lot of folks do research, a lot of experiments to where it's totally, it's revolutionized today and it continues to be. So there wasn't that expertise in those days that there is today. And I know that to be true, some, some of the terminology that was used, some of the reports that are written, written uh, it's different today. I did find one justification from the prosecution on the lack of blowback. One expert testified that it wouldn't be unusual in a close range shooting for there to be no blood or tissue inside the barrel of the gun. He said the muzzle blast can have somewhat of a shielding effect because the bullet is traveling with so much energy, meaning the blood or tissue would travel and land on anything else but the gun. Aside from blowback, Rod Englert says there's another critical piece of evidence that proves Mike couldn't have been the killer. As you recall in episode one, Pune's team recovered DNA on Effie's sweater that was presumably left behind when the killer held Effie up momentarily after shooting her. Because Effie and Azuri had blood dripping down her left leg from where was the wound on the left side, the entry wound. So now in this really short period of time, blood has gone back, gone over her sleeve, and now it's dripping down her leg. That can't happen unless she's standing stationary. The medical examiner noted the shot was incapacitating, which means it would have dropped Effie to the ground instantaneously. Englert says the only explanation for the blood droplets to fall where they did is gravity. The killer must have held Effie up by grabbing her arm. Englert believes that's how the shooter deposited his DNA on Effie's sweater. And when he made his getaway, 
The shooter left what's called cast off on the truck parked right next to Effie's body. The way her body is found would have had to have stepped over her and then swing the arm or the gun, which you would expect to have blood. Mm -hmm. And it's called cast off and it goes onto the right rear fender back behind the wheel of the vehicle that's parked there. And there was blood found on that vehicle. Oh yeah, there's cast off drops. So the only way the blood would have gotten on the back of that pickup next to where Effie was parked would have been from the shooter swinging their arm, presumably, or Walking the gun. Walking away, swinging the arm, and yeah, swinging, you have to cast it. And the reason that's important is because <clears throat> that would show there would have been blood on the gun, perhaps inside or the, the hand. barrel. Or the hand. Yes, right. Enough to where the droplets would come off. Each one of those stains is a droplet. The medical examiner had a different theory for how the blood ended up on that pickup. He testified it was most likely blood spatter that came from Effie's ears, mouth, or nose as she fell. She could have coughed or spit up blood on her way down, and it wasn't from the killer swinging the gun as he walked away. Still, Rod Inglert has serious doubts Mike could have killed Effie Antazari and it goes beyond the lack of blowback on the gun. In my 57 years, I've worked hundreds, I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of murder cases. Still do it, lecture around the country, still do it, involve myself with agencies that are working murder cases. And I've interviewed and interrogated a lot of criminals. And I met Mike in Missouri. This guy is not stupid. This guy is extremely smart. And it's beyond my thinking at six in the morning that this man would go in daylight and shoot his ex-wife in front of all this apartment with everybody looking at and there were people. One heard a gunshot, one saw a yellow car that would be so stupid to think that he would not be identified and get into this yellow car, which didn't make sense either. I mean, that takes a lot of, you know, this, this is like a, this was like a hit. This was like somebody ordered this to be done or it had to be done. I mean, it's going up just like it's an assassination. And and I'm not taking his side, and I'm not against him or for him. I just let the facts do the talking. But you can't be that stupid. Regardless of what Rod thinks of Mike's intelligence, or even the lack of blood on his gun, during the murder trial, none of that mattered. Because the prosecutor had an ace up his sleeve, a state ballistics expert who said, Without a doubt, the bullet that killed Effie came from Mike's gun. Next time on The Yellow Car. If you look for something long enough and hard enough, you're eventually going to find it. Two ballistic experts don't disagree to where two people say we can't make a determination on what this bullet came out of. So you're saying you would not be able to say that it was absolutely one way or the other Mike's gun? No. But you could say it could have been another gun. Correct. 
Do you think that Mike was wrongly imprisoned and that he was innocent? Yeah, I do think that. This is the beginning of the end. The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korsland. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff.